So I, I know you've got a lot going on. But remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Hello, you guys. Welcome back to another episode of Hollow Week. This is episode two of Hollow Week. If you missed yesterday's episode, you can go ahead and listen to that one if you want to right now and then come back. And if you're unfamiliar with what Hollow Week is, Hollow Week is the one time a year where we do five back-to-back episodes of crazy true crime and paranormal cases within the five days leading up to Halloween. I love Hollow Week. You guys love Hollow Week. It's a win-win all the way around. So with that being said, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. That way you don't miss an episode. We usually post weekly every single Wednesday, but for this special little Hollow Week segment, we will be posting every day for five days straight. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. It's going to be a crazy next couple days of cases. So buckle up. So I decided for this episode of Hollow Week, we are going to be talking about arguably the most gruesome serial killer duo in American history. Over the time of their murder spree, they tortured, raped, and murdered five young women over the course of five months in California in 1979. Today we are talking about Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, otherwise known as the Toolbox Killers. These men have been described by the FBI as the most disturbing individuals for reasons you will understand as we continue on with this case, so let's get into it. Lawrence Bittaker was born on September 27, 1940 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His birth parents had decided right when Lawrence was born that they didn't want to have any children, so they ended up placing Lawrence up for adoption, where he was adopted shortly after by a couple named Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker. Everywhere I looked, I was unable to find Lawrence's adoptive mother's name. Everywhere out there, they are referred to as Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker, so that is what we are going to have to go off of. Now, George worked in the aviation industry, so he worked in aircraft factories, and because of this, it required his family to move around a lot. They moved from Pennsylvania to Florida to Ohio, and then they moved to California. Throughout all of these moves, Lawrence did rack up a little bit of a record. He was first arrested at the age of 12 for shoplifting. He was also arrested for stealing a car, as well as leaving the scene of a hit-and-run accident and resisting arrest. So he did have a little bit of a record once they moved out to California. Now, something to know about Lawrence was that he was a pretty smart guy. He had an IQ of 138, which to give you some context, falls into the category of moderately gifted. The average IQ score ranges anywhere from 
from 85 to 114, and any score over 130 is considered a high IQ, and then 160 is considered a genius IQ. So he had scored 138, but Lawrence was not a fan of school, so he ended up dropping out of high school in 1957. And it was after he dropped out of high school that he started acting out and rebelling, and that's when the charges for car theft and the hit and run and resisting arrest happened. So it's clear that dropping out of high school definitely led him down the beginning of a very very bad path. He ended up serving time at the California Youth Authority, where he stayed until he was 18 years old, and once he was released is when he discovered that his adoptive parents basically disowned him. They moved to a completely different state while he was incarcerated, and Lawrence never saw them again. So then we move on to Roy Norris. Roy Norris was born on February 5th, 1948 in Greeley, Colorado. So he was eight years younger than Lawrence. Now when Roy's mom got pregnant with him, her and Roy's father were not married. However, they ended up getting married once they found out that they were expecting. Roy's father worked in a junkyard and his mother became a stay-at-home mom. However, Roy's mom did struggle with a drug addiction. Now, even though Roy had both of his parents, he was also in and out of the foster care system because his parents weren't deemed fit to take care of him on multiple different occasions. So Roy was placed in foster homes throughout the state of Colorado. Now, when it comes to his childhood, Roy has said that his experience living with his biological parents was very toxic and also said that he was neglected by many of the foster families he lived with, saying that he was denied food and clothing. And he also said that he experienced sexual abuse in one of his foster homes. So both boys definitely did have a little bit of a rough upbringing. It was not smooth sailing by any means. Now, when Roy was 16 years old, he ended up visiting a female relative of his, and once he met up with this female relative, he ended up making sexual advances towards her, which she ended up rejecting, and then went on to tell Roy's father about the advances that he had made, and this caused Roy to get into a huge argument with his dad, and he ended up stealing his father's car to drive himself to the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, where he attempted suicide by trying to inject air into an artery in his arm. Now, this attempt was unsuccessful, and police ended up picking him up and bringing him back to his parents' house. When he got home, his parents decided that it was a good time to tell him and his younger sister that both of them were born out of wedlock and that they were never wanted. Why this is something you would say in general to anyone, I don't know, but maybe it was just the heat of the moment of it all, but that is what they told Roy and his younger sister. This is also the time when his parents decided to break the news that they were getting a divorce. So with all of this going on, Roy decided to also drop out of high school and he joined the United States Navy and was stationed in San Diego in 1965 and then was deployed to Vietnam in 1969. He was then honorably discharged from the Navy after one tour. Now, when it comes to Roy's record, in November of 1969, he was arrested and charged with rape and assault 
with attempt to commit rape. Three months later, in February 1970, he was arrested again after trying to break into a woman's house after she wouldn't let him inside. And luckily, she was unharmed because she called the police before anything could happen. Three months after this incident, Roy was actually diagnosed by a military psychologist with having schizoid personality. Now, if you are unaware, this is a disorder where people avoid social activities and interacting with others, and it typically begins in early adulthood. Now, just as a clarification, this is not just antisocial. This is a legitimate thing. So, this is what Roy was diagnosed with by a military psychologist. Now, in May of 1970, after being released on bail, Roy then attacked a female student again on the San Diego State University campus. He struck her in the back of her head repeatedly and then beat her head against the sidewalk. He was then charged with assault with a deadly weapon and was given five years at the Arascadero State Hospital, where he was categorized as a mentally disordered sex offender. After his five years was up, he was released and given five years of probation. Now, when he was released, doctors said that he was, quote, no longer a danger to others. However, just three months later, he raped another woman. But Roy ended up not being identified for this crime until about a month after the offense. And once he was identified, he was arrested again and sent to the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. And this is where he met Lawrence Bittaker, who at the time was serving time for charges of assault with attempt to commit murder after he had stabbed a supermarket employee after he was accused of stealing. So this is how Lawrence and Roy met each other. Now, during their time in prison, Roy said that Lawrence saved him on two separate occasions from being attacked by other inmates. And after that, the two of them became extremely close and they compared their previous crimes. Roy opened up to Lawrence about his sexual crimes and said the main reason he enjoyed committing these types of crimes was to see young women scared. Now, Lawrence at this time didn't have any previous record of sexual offenses. However, he told Roy at the time that if he were to ever rape a woman, he would kill her. That way, he wouldn't leave a witness to the crime. Now, while Roy and Lawrence were having these discussions, they ended up coming up with a plan together. They decided that once they were released, they were going to go on and murder a young woman of each age from 13 years old to 19 years old. So to clarify, they wanted to murder a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, and so on and so forth until 19 years old. Now, Lawrence was released on October 15th, 1978, and once he was released, he ended up getting a job as a machinist, and he had a good reputation once he was released. He was actually known to have a lot of friends, and he donated some of his money to organizations like the Salvation Army, and he even went out of his way to pass out food and wine to homeless people in downtown. LA. 
Now, three months after Lawrence was released, Roy was released also on January 15th, 1979. And once he was released, he moved into his mother's home located in Redondo Beach, California, which is also in the LA area. Roy got a job as an electrician and shortly after his release, Lawrence reached out to Roy to reconnect, and in late February, the two of them met at a hotel to craft out their plan. Now, one of the first things that these two decided on was that they were going to need a van in order to successfully pull off these abductions. The two of them put their money together and they purchased a 1977 silver GMC van in February 1979 in Lawrence's name. The van had a large passenger side sliding door, which the two figured would be extremely ideal in being able to snatch someone quickly. All they'd have to do is open the door and throw them into the van. They actually ended up naming this van too. They came up with the name Murder Mac. So they called the van Murder Mac, and it also had a bed in the back of it that they would use to tie their victims up to. And underneath the bed is where they kept their tools, clothes, and a cooler that they kept beer and other drinks in. So Roy and Lawrence did about over 20 what they call practice runs between February to June in 1979. They picked up over 20 female hitchhikers and they didn't assault them and they didn't harm them, but they used it as a way to perfect how they were going to lure girls into the van when they did decide to start killing. So let's talk about the first victim. On June 24th, 1979, Roy and Lawrence were driving around Redondo Beach, California. Now, their plan consisted of hanging around the beach area, drinking, and flirting with girls. They said that they had no set routine for this day. However, at about 7.45 p.m., they saw a girl walking on the sidewalk, and the two of them set their eye on her fairly quickly and were determined to make her their first victim. Now, this girl was 16-year-old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. Lucinda was seen walking down the sidewalk, heading back to her grandmother's house after leaving church, and that was when Roy and Lawrence drove up to her and asked her if she wanted to smoke weed with them or if she wanted just a ride home back to her house, both to which Lucinda declined. It was after that where they drove ahead of her and parked the van, and when Lucinda walked by, Roy opened the van door, grabbed her, and dragged her inside of the van and closed the door behind him. Once they got Lucinda into the car, Lawrence said that he then turned the radio to full volume while Roy was in the back tying up Lucinda to the bed and gagging her with duct tape. Now, according to Lawrence, he said that after her abduction, Lucinda quickly pulled herself together. He said, quote, she displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the condition of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming, end quote. Lawrence drove the van to the San Gabriel Mountains, which is about a two-hour drive from Redondo Beach, and once they arrived, Roy told Lawrence to go take a walk and to come back in an hour. That way, he could be alone with Lucinda. 
During this time alone is when Roy raped Lucinda, and when Lawrence came back, he did the same. Lucinda asked Roy while she was alone with him if their plan was to kill her, and he told her no. Lucinda asked Roy that if that ever was the case, and they did want to kill her, she asked to be allowed to pray before her murder. Now, when Roy and Lawrence were interviewed about Lucinda's murder, they both said that they argued with each other over whether or not to murder her or to let her go, each stating that the other wanted to murder her. However, ultimately, Roy ended up strangling Lucinda. He manually strangled her for about 45 seconds before he stopped ran to the front of the van and started throwing up, which is when Lauren stepped in and manually strangled her as well, and that is when Lucinda collapsed onto the ground and her body actually started convulsing. Lawrence then took a wire clothes hanger and wrapped it around Lucinda's neck and started strangling her that way until she ultimately died. Her body was then wrapped in a plastic shower curtain and thrown over the canyon. Roy said that Lawrence told him that the animals would eventually get to Lucinda so there would be no evidence of their crime. So now let's move on to their second victim. Just two weeks after the murder of Lucinda on July 8th, 1979, Lawrence and Roy met 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall while she was hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. Andrea was actually picked up by a different car. It was a white convertible before Lawrence and Roy were able to get to her. However, they were extremely determined and they ended up following this white convertible until it dropped off Andrea at her next spot. Once she was dropped off by this white convertible, she then stuck her thumb out again to attempt hitchhiking and continue on with her journey. Now, Roy and Lawrence had a change of strategy this time. While picking up Andrea, Roy hid underneath the bed in the back of the van to make it appear that Lawrence was the only one inside of it. That way, it would be less threatening. So, Lawrence pulled up to Andrea and asked if she wanted a ride, and Andrea got into the van thinking it was just her and Lawrence. When Lawrence offered Andrea a drink in the cooler, she walked back to the van, and that is when Roy reached out from underneath the bed, grabbed Andrea's legs, and pulled them so she fell to the ground. The two of them wrestled on the ground for a little bit as Andrea tried to fight for her life. However, ultimately, Roy was too strong and twisted her arm back until she surrendered, which was when Roy then tied her ankles and wrists to the bed and covered her mouth with tape. The men drove back to the same spot where they took their first victim, the St. Gabriel Mountains, and that is when they both took turns raping Andrea. Now, this time, Lawrence told Roy to go down to the local liquor store and get them some more beers while he stayed with Andrea. And during this time, Lawrence forced Andrea to walk uphill without any clothes on alongside of the road. He then had her pose for several Polaroid pictures without any clothes on. And by the time Roy came back, Andrea was already gone. So Roy was extremely confused because this wasn't like what happened the first time. So he had asked Lawrence what happened to Andrea. And that is when Lawrence told him that he ended up stabbing her with an ice pick twice, once in each of her ears, and then following that, he strangled her after stabbing her to death didn't kill her. After he completed the murder, he then threw her off a cliff in a similar fashion that he did to Lucinda. 
Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. So those were the first two victims, and now we move on to the third and fourth victim. On September 3rd, two girls named Jackie Gilliam and Jacqueline Lamp were seen at a bus stop together in Hermosa Beach. Now, these would end up being Lawrence and Roy's youngest victims, with Jacqueline being only 13 years old and Jackie being 15 years old. Now, when Lawrence and Roy spotted both of the girls, they used the fact that they were at a bus stop to their advantage because they asked the girls if they would like a ride and they also offered to smoke weed with them. Now, these girls accepted Roy and Lawrence's offer and got into the van with them. Now, pretty quickly, once the girls got into the car, they noticed that something was wrong and they noticed this once Lawrence veered off of the Pacific Coast Highway and started driving in the direction of the San Gabriel Mountains. The girls started panicking and Jacqueline attempted to open the sliding door of the van, which was when Roy hit her over the head with a bag full of lead weights, which knocked her unconscious. Being unconscious allowed Roy to take control and he began to tie her to the bed and gag her. Now, in the midst of doing this, Jacqueline ended up regaining consciousness and tried to escape again, only for Roy to grab her and twist her arm behind her back. Now, while all of this was happening, Lawrence started to get a little worried because he was worried that there were two people in the car instead of one. It could cause more of a commotion and they're driving by people, so maybe these would be potential witnesses. So, in order to avoid that, Lawrence ended up pulling the van over and punched Jackie in the face and then Roy and Lawrence both tied both of the girls up so they wouldn't be able to escape. Now, unlike the other two victims they had killed before, Roy and Lawrence actually kept these girls alive and held them captive for two days. This time, they also allegedly taped themselves raping the girls, which Lawrence admitted to burying the tapes in a cemetery and to this day, it's never been found. The men then tortured these young girls by stabbing them in the chest with ice picks, as well as using grip pliers to rip off their skin. After two days of being held in captivity, Jackie was stabbed in each ear with an ice pick again and also strangled to death. Now, with Jacqueline, the men wanted to make her suffer more. They wanted it to be more of a struggle because she hadn't been as cooperative as Jackie had been during their time in captivity. So, she was struck over the head multiple times with a sledgehammer as Lawrence strangled her at the same time. 
time. So now we get to Halloween 1979, and this was when Lawrence and Roy abducted their final victim. And up until this point, the pair seemed to have a very precise MO. They seemed to have done things pretty much the same way every single time, which each victim that they had. However, this time was different. On October 31st, 1979, Lawrence and Roy spotted 16-year-old Shirley Ledford as she was outside of a gas station trying to hitchhike home from a Halloween party she had attended earlier that night. Now, Shirley actually worked part-time as a waitress, and Lawrence was a regular at the restaurant that she worked at, so authorities believed that when Shirley saw Lawrence, she accepted a ride from him because she was familiar with him. He was a familiar face. She saw him a lot at the restaurant, so she didn't think much of it. However, when Shirley got into the van, Roy offered her marijuana again, typical to their previous MOs, and that is when Lawrence drove the van to a secluded street and the two of them bound and gagged Shirley with construction tape. Now, Shirley's murder, along with the other girls, was extremely disturbing. However, the men switched up their M.O., and instead of Lawrence being the one who drove the van, this time Lawrence was in the back of the van with Shirley while Roy drove around aimlessly for an hour. While Lawrence was with Shirley, he pulled off the construction tape from her mouth and began physically beating her. Now, while he was doing this, Lawrence demanded for Shirley to scream. He would tell her to scream louder, and when she would scream, Lawrence would say things to her like, quote, "'What's the matter? Don't you like to scream?' end quote." Lawrence demanded for Shirley to scream as loud as she could while simultaneously beating her with a hammer. He also used pliers to torture her, and Lawrence actually audio recorded this whole torturous interaction because when he got into the back of the van with Shirley, he turned the tape recorder on. Now, after Lawrence had been in the back with Shirley, him and Roy switched places. The audio recording shows Roy telling Shirley to, quote, scream or I'll make you scream, end quote, to which Shirley responded with, quote, I'll scream if you stop hitting me, end quote. So Shirley screamed multiple times before Roy then reached for a sledgehammer and struck Shirley with it on her left elbow. Once this happened, Shirley told Roy not to hit her again because he had broken her shoulder. However, Roy did not listen and he proceeded to hit Shirley with the sledgehammer again 25 times. After being held captive by the men for about two hours, Roy killed Shirley by strangling her with a wire coat hanger. Now, instead of putting her body over a cliff like they had done with the previous victims, these men decided that they wanted to place Shirley's body in a random lawn, like in the front yard of someone's house. And they wanted to do this because they wanted to get a reaction. They wanted a reaction to form from the press. So it was the next day when Shirley's body was discovered by a jogger. And when they performed an autopsy on her, it showed that Shirley had died from strangulation after receiving extensive blunt force trauma to her face, and it was shown that there were pliers inserted into her body during her rape. So those are the known victims of Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker. 
So now we move on to the next part of this case, which is how these two men ended up getting caught. And it might not have been the way you think it would have gone. Now, Roy Norris, in essence, couldn't keep his mouth shut. Shortly after the murder of Shirley, he started bragging to other people about what him and Lawrence had been doing. Now, one of these people was a man named Joseph Jackson. Joseph and Roy had known each other previously as they had both been incarcerated at California Men's Colony Prison. Roy told Joseph all about him and Lawrence's murders and gave graphic details in specific about the murder of Shirley. When Joseph was told these things, he then contacted his attorney and asked his attorney what he should do with the information that he had heard, and that is when the attorney said it would be best to contact the authorities, which is when Joseph and his attorney informed the LAPD about what had been going on. Now, when the LAPD got a hold of this information, they then passed it on to the Hermosa Beach Police. Now, the lead detective on this case was a man named Paul Bynum, and according to Paul, when beginning his investigation, he said that what Joseph had said had actually matched up with several teenage girls who had gone missing over the past five months, and when he was able to connect those dots, he realized that this could be something very serious. Now, something that Roy also confided to Joseph about was an incident where him and Lawrence had abducted a young woman named Robin Robeck. Now, when they abducted Robin, they pulled her into the van and raped her. However, unlike the previous victims, Robin was actually released, and she did go to the authorities to report what happened to her and told police that her attackers were white males in their 30s. However, authorities were never able to find the men who attacked her. So because Robin was the only woman that police knew of who could possibly identify these men, Detective Bynum had an investigator go to Robin's house and show her a series of mugshots, and very quickly, Robin was able to identify her attackers as Lawrence and Roy. Now, before arresting the men, authorities actually placed Roy under surveillance, and this is when they were able to spot him with marijuana, and back then it was illegal. And so on November 20th, he was arrested for parole violation. That same day, Lawrence was also arrested at the Burbank Hotel for the rape of Robin Robeck. Now, when these men were arrested, they were brought into the police station, where Robin was then asked again to identify the men out of a lineup in person, so not pictures this time. However, this time, she was unable to correctly do so. She didn't point out Lawrence and Roy this time. But regardless, authorities had Roy violating parole with the marijuana, and Lawrence was found with drug possession at the time of his arrest, so both of them were luckily held on charges of parole violation instead of just being released. Now, when authorities looked through Lawrence's hotel room, they were able to find Polaroid pictures that him and Roy had taken with two of their victims, which obviously connected both men to the crime. In both Roy and Lawrence's rooms, police found Polaroid pictures of 500 young teenage girls and young women collectively. 
Now, during the trial, the LA County Sheriff Peter Pitches said in a press statement that 19 women in the pictures that were discovered had been reported missing. And it's possible that Roy and Lawrence could very well have had something to do with it. However, authorities had no conclusive evidence to prove that. Along with that, they looked inside Lawrence's van, the murder Mac, and authorities discovered the sledgehammer, plastic bag filled with lead weights, and a book on how to locate police radio frequencies in order to steer clear the police. They also found two necklaces that were later confirmed to be belonging to two of the victims, as well as the tape recordings of the torture prior to the murder. On November 30th, 1979, Roy attended a preliminary hearing in regards to the rape of Robin, as well as the murders, and at first, he completely denied any involvement in all of it. He said he was completely innocent, however, after being confronted with the strong evidence they had against him, Roy's innocent stance then began to unfold and he started to confess. According to Roy, he said that Lawrence was the one who was more dominant and took the lead on all of the murders and that Roy just went along and followed his lead. Roy agreed to take authorities to the San Gabriel Mountains to search for the bodies that they had murdered, which he was able to do. However, the bodies of Lucinda Schaefer and Andrea Hall were never discovered. To this day, they haven't been discovered. And when authorities found the body of Jackie Gilliam, she was found with an ice pick still lodged into her skull. In February 1980, Lawrence and Roy were charged with the murder of the five girls, and while Lawrence was denied bail, Roy's bail was actually set to only $10,000. After one month of being charged with the murder, Roy accepted a plea deal that stated that he would testify against Lawrence in return for not receiving the death penalty as well as not receiving life without parole. Now, on March 18, 1980, Roy pled guilty to four counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery. On April 24, 1980, Lawrence was arraigned on a total of 29 charges of kidnapping, rape, sodomy, and murder. On May 7, 1980, Roy was sentenced to 45 years to life with eligibility for parole in 2010. Now, Lawrence's trial began on January 19, 1981. Roy testified against him on January 22nd, and this is what people were waiting for. People were so ready to hear what Roy had to say when testifying against Lawrence, and he basically explained how the two of them met in jail, they formed an alliance, and began their killing spree when they were released. On February 5th, Lawrence ended up testifying on his own behalf, denying any knowledge in the abduction and murder of Lucinda Schaefer, and also claimed that he paid Andrea Hall $200 to have sex with him and said that Roy walked Andrea into the San Gabriel Mountains and when he came back, he told Lawrence that he had told Andrea to find her own way home so he had no idea about any of it. So essentially just pinning Andrea's murder on Roy completely. Now Lawrence's trial lasted for a little bit over three weeks and then on February 17th, after deliberating for three days, Lawrence Bittaker was found guilty of five 
five counts of first-degree murder, one charge of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, five charges of kidnapping, nine charges of rape, two charges of forcible copulation, one charge of sodomy, and three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm. And unlike Roy, Lawrence was sentenced to death for the five counts of first-degree murder. Now, after he was convicted, Lawrence did several interviews, and in none of the interviews did he express any remorse for his crimes. And the only thing that he said he felt remorse for was the fact that him and Roy were arrested and the fact that he ruined his own life. Now, Lawrence ended up passing away of natural causes on December 13th, 2019, so just less than a year ago, and Roy was incarcerated at the Richard Donovan Correctional Facility, and he just died a couple months ago from natural causes as well on February 24th of this year at the age of 72. He was denied parole in 2010, so he stayed in prison until the day that he died, and he was actually transferred to the this new facility just a week prior to his death. Now, Paul Bynum, the chief investigator of the crimes, actually committed suicide in December 1987 when he was only 39 years old. Remember, he was the lead detective on this case, and in his 10-page suicide note, he said that the murders that were committed by Lawrence and Roy had haunted him, and he was afraid of what would happen if they were released from prison. Now, something else that came from these murders was the fact that the audio recordings of Lawrence and Roy torturing their victims are now used in the FBI to train their agents and desensitize them from the reality of torture and murder. So they listen to the tapes to get them used to what they're going to see out in the real world. It's pretty crazy to think that it had that big of an impact and that those tapes are still used today. So that's all we have on this case, and it's a crazy one. It blows my mind at how brutal these two men were, the tools that they used, and the lengths that they went in order to torture their victims, and how much they enjoyed it. They enjoyed the torture. So I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say on this case, if you've heard about it before, if you haven't heard about it before. So you can email me all your thoughts at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you are subscribed to the podcast, you guys. We post every single week on Wednesdays. Now, this week is a little bit different. We'll be posting every single day for the next four days today. Yeah, next four days. I'm not good at math. Um, But we will be here every single day leading up to Halloween. So make sure you guys are subscribed. That way you are ready for tomorrow's episode. And with that being said, you guys, that is the second episode of Halloween. Thank you so much for tuning into it. I will be back tomorrow with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, happy Halloween.